This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Financial Times podcast in association with City Index. Why are we waiting? Transferring a cash ISA has got quicker, but isn't 15 days still ludicrously long? Who can wait a century? Will the government's new 100-year gilts be any use to income investors? And should you buy a six-year FTSE-linked investment? Financial advisors seem to think so. All this to come in the FT Money Show. I'm Matthew Vincent. I'll be giving you the financial lowdown in downloadable form with my colleague from FT Money, Elaine Moore. Hello. And our special studio guest, David Dyer, Senior Portfolio Manager at AXA Investment Managers. Hello. Let's start then with the money news. This week, the Office of Fair Trading announced that following its investigation in 2010, the time taken to transfer a cash ISA from one provider to another had been cut from 23 days to 15 days, and providers now backdate interest if the transfer is delayed. Its original investigation followed a super complaint from Consumer Focus, which had argued that savers were losing billions of pounds in interest because of delays and the poor practices of many providers. But why should it even take 15 days to move cash? Well, believe it or not, it's because banks and building societies are still using cheques to transfer money between cash ISA accounts in spite of their own attempt to scrap chequebooks for customers last year. Electronic transfer systems could move the money in less than 15 seconds, certain lobbying groups have pointed out. Elaine, in this day and age, 15 days to move cash, it's ridiculous. When it could be 15 seconds. It's an anachronism, isn't it? It's very strange. And when I spoke to people about this, when I spoke to providers, they said, "Mm, yes, uh, some of us do send money electronically, but yes, some of them do still use cheques, write the cheque, post it, wait for it to arrive, cash it in. So it's this very ancient payment system that's being used for something that millions of us are doing. uh, Where it's about 6 million of us expected to transfer our cash ISAs in the next few weeks as ISA season hots up. So it's it's very strange that this very old system is still being used. It'd be quicker to, to get the cash 
put it in a wheelbarrow, take it down the high street. I mean, it's daft. The banks say that the reason for this is that you have to maintain the, the integrity of the account. So this is a, a tax wrapper. It's a tax-efficient account. And in order for that to stay a tax-efficient account, there are all sorts of you know processes that have to go on. But when you look at the little guideline that they give on how this all works, it's very strange because it seems to go up to about day seven. And then from day seven to day 15 is this empty space when presumably the money is in transit. Do? We're not sure. And they have also said that it's not always 15 days. It's It can usually be less than that. But 15 days is this sort of limit that's been set by the banks themselves and by the OFT within which the money has to be moved. Now, on, on this very show um, some months back, we talked about the new quicker um, ordinary account transfer process that's going to come in. Could that not be used to speed up ISA transfers? Apparently not. So that will be about a week, which again, the lobby groups say, why is it a week? Why does it have to be that long? The banks say that's that's just the way it is. And in a way, we should be grateful because actually the OFT report, when we're looking at cash ISAs again, found that two years ago, a quarter of cash ISAs took 30 days to be transferred. So that's a whole month when your money is just out in the ether. And a lot of cases, some of it was getting lost and people would hear nothing about it until a month had gone past and they wondered why this new account hadn't been opened. And of course, yeah, no interest being earned. And, and the whole point of ISA is tax-free interest. Are any particular banks or building societies better than others in this respect, or are they all much of a muchness? They're not very keen on saying who's better and who's worse. Um, what we should say, though, is that from next year, all of the 16 members of BACS, which is this particular payment system, they will all be moving cash ISAs electronically. But and that's the main high street banks and building societies. But uh, anyone who's not a member doesn't have to do that. They can still write a check if they want to. They can still take 15 days if they so wish. Or seven days and then seven days sitting around twiddling their, twiddling their thumbs. I mean, th- this is a, a, an important issue. Um, we can sort of make light of the, uh, uh, of the sort of bizarre uh, <laughs> reasons for the delay. But it is costing, as Consumer Focus uh, pointed out, potentially millions, if not billions of of pounds in interest. And, of course, transfers are so important because lots of our listeners will have money in old ISAs that are earning really low rates now. Absolutely, because all the best rates right now rely on an introductory bonus, which is a rate that will disappear after a year. So if we take the best rate right now, we've got um, we've got NatWest that's offering 3.5% for an easy access ISA. But after one year, the 1% bonus drops away, it becomes 2.5%. So our listeners who will be aware of these introductory bonuses and will be very promptly moving their money will know that if the money sticks around it will earn less. If you want to earn more, you forgot to move it. You've got to transfer the cash. Yeah, these ISAs come with a sort of built-in requirement to transfer almost. Absolutely. Um, which makes speeding up the process even more important. Um, for those um, people who are willing to tie their money up for a little bit longer, or perhaps who, who don't want to have to go through the transfer process every 12 months, what about um, fixed rates uh, You know, over sort of two, three, even five years? Are there better rates there? They're there? pretty good, actually. If we, if we think about the fact the Bank of England base rate is 0.5%. It's been that way for three years. You can earn 4% from Santander for a two-year fixed ISA. So that's pretty good. The best five-year fixed ISA is actually not that much above that rate. So it's 4.5% from Halifax. But this Santander 4% for two-year fixed is one that a lot of advisors have been repeatedly telling me is a good deal right now. Best of the market right now and at least you don't have to transfer for 
for two years. Elaine, thank you very much indeed for talking us through that. And for more on ISA transfers, look out for Elaine's reports in the money section of this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, are structured products a low-risk way of playing the stock market? Financial advisors think so. Or are they too complex and opaque for private investors? Some banks seem to think so. So who's right? First, though, government bonds or gilts. Earlier this week, the Treasury signalled that it is going to issue gilts with a term of 100 years and even some perpetual bonds that have no maturity date at all. They will allow the Chancellor to lock in to the low borrowing rates that the UK currently enjoys, partly thanks to its relative safe haven status, and not have to worry about paying the investors back, at least not for a very long time. But who'd want to invest in a bond that pays a low rate of income almost forever? Pension funds might want to plan for future commitments, but with so many closed to new savers, their needs don't really extend for another 100 years. Income funds would hardly want such a commitment either. One leading fund manager this week said, is this a gimmick to grab the headlines? I wouldn't want to lock into such low yields for such a long time. Now, David, you've been looking at this and you have been studying the gilt market for almost 30 years, I believe. But um, these... 100-year gilts. They they sound a bit like war bonds, but what are they good for? Absolutely nothing? I mean, correct. Just like the original war loan that was originally issued back in 1917 and is still outstanding, then they do provide a sort of a fixed income over a long period of time from what is one of the few remaining AAA-rated governments, so provide a secure income. And for the government, this is presumably an attractive way of borrowing without, you know, having to worry about it for too long? For the government, there are two key advantages. Firstly, it extends the lifetime of their debt. And it means, and this is one of the key advantages the UK government has and rating agencies have pointed to, that have it, that having your debt profile longer, for example, the UK is currently 14 years, which is about twice mainly other economies. That's a key advantage for them. And secondly, it locks in the current low level of um, interest rates, enabling them to borrow it um, for a long term at very low rates. So very nice for the, for the Chancellor, potentially. Um, and, and the reason why we're hearing about this, I imagine, in the week before the, the budget. But let's look at pensions, people who are saving into pensions. There was a suggestion that a 100-year bond might be quite a good thing for a pension to hold. But since we heard about it, lots of pension funds have been saying, actually, no, not a great deal of use. Pension funds have always had a demand for long-dated investments, and they've always historically been urging the government to issue longer dates. However, unless you're a very optimistic actuary and expecting very increased longevity, then 100 years is basically um, much longer than uh, any, invest- any investor's conceivable liability. So in that respect, uh, they would be uh, too long. The other concern for pension funds, which um, is inflation, most in pension funds' liabilities are linked to inflation. This being a fixed rate investment would not protect themselves against the risks of inflation. And to return to sort of the impact of war loan, then the fact that has been going for ever since sort of the 1930s, then the impact of inflation over the period, we think of the period since 1930, that's a drastic effect. So what you really want is inflation-linked liabilities and long-dated, but not as long as 100 years for a pension fund. 
which a lot of people have been saying that, that they would have welcomed this far more if uh, if these were index linked uh, issues. I mean, at the moment, it's not a definite commitment; it's a consultation, and I'm sure this is one of the things that the De- De- debt management office will consider um, the possibility of issuing inflation linked and possibly also issuing shorter dated bonds. Well, eventually, we may not get the eventual perpetual bond fixed rate hundred year issue, but I suspect what we will see is more in announced in the. Uh, budget next week is perhaps more long-dated issuance, even if it's not as long as 100 years. And let's turn to um, bond funds, bond fund managers. Um, again, uh, I, I quoted that, that manager saying that you know, he didn't want to get involved in anything that's got such a long term. Can you think of anyone else who, who might want to use these? I mean, again, bond fund managers will either buy them if they want to match liabilities. And as I mentioned earlier, then very few investors have liabilities stretching out that long. Our second uh, possible investor would be those who think they're going to get a good return from it. And if you want to invest in a bond with such a long maturity at an interest rate of, say, round about three and a half, three point six percent, which is probably where they would be issued, then you've got to have a lot of faith in the long term faith in the government that they're going to meet their inflation target over that period. You certainly do. Um, one person I spoke to um, earlier this week actually made the point that the that the war loan, uh, the one that one that you mentioned earlier, did appreciate in value quite sharply over a, a period of years, some time back. I mean, is that is that a possibility with with any new long term issuance? I mean, you would have to expect if you might expected uh, gilt funds to appreciate gilts generally, and also this very long dated gilts to appreciate in value, then you've got to expect interest rates to fall even further than we are at the moment. At the moment, we've got uh, bank base rates down at a sort of virtually low level of a half percent, and it's, it's difficult to see them falling much further. You've also got the effect of quantitative easing that the Bank of England is doing, um, bearing down on long term interest rates. And so um, at the moment, the pressures have been downward on gilt yields, and it's difficult to see the yields to fall much further, and consequently, seen a, a greater appreciation in price. And just finally, w- when the consultation on these future longer term gilts is is completed, do you expect that the terms will be different? I mean, you've, you've hinted that there might be an element of index linking. I, I think an index linking is a possibility. I think there will be probably more long dated issuance, if not actually perhaps as long as a hundred years. But to say um, it is a topic that has been raised occasionally by investors before, so there may be some demand, but perhaps not very widespread. We'll have to see uh, for the moment, uh, David. Thanks. And uh, Elaine, I'll just bring you in. I mean, income investing is a topic you've been uh, looking at this week. Uh, Where are investors being advised to search for for higher yields than they can get on, on gilts at the moment? Well, wealth managers are saying that a lot of investors are actually just being pushed towards riskier and riskier asset classes, possibly riskier than they would necessarily like in search of income. They say that no matter um, what your sort of risk profile, you you almost don't have a choice right now because if you want to beat rising prices and you've and you've got this amazingly low interest rate environment, then where else can you look? You you have to look towards equity. And you're even looking at emerging market equity. That's what some wealth managers have been talking to me about. Some of the dividends on offer from um, ex-Japan, Asian uh, equity income funds are actually sort of on a par with, say, UK dividends, which is quite unusual and quite unexpected. So we're looking further afield and more risk. Looking further afield in the in the hunt for income, David. Any sort of recommendation you'd make to listeners? I mean, on the bond side, what we've seen the trend has been because of the very low level of government bond interest rates. Then people are more interested in credit funds to provide the extra yield that you can get via credit. So, if your gilt fund 
probably it might only yield, say, 2%, then you may, by investing in a corporate bond fund, be able to get a return of, say, 5% or even 7% if you move to the laws, the more high-yield bonds. Investors are also conscious of the risks of rising interest rates, so uh, to a certain extent they've trended towards a shorter-duration bond fund that can that can still pick up a yield of 4%. And as mentioned earlier, the risks of inflation mean that uh, people also look at inflation-linked investments. David, thank you very much indeed. And if you'd like to know more about gilts, bond funds and the income funds that Elaine uh, was alluding to, make sure you read all of the articles in the money section of this weekend's FT and online at ft.com forward slash money. And finally today, FTSE linked structured products. Sales of structured products to private investors have soared in the first two months of this year, in spite of a string of warnings and fines from the regulator about these complex investments. Research indicates that the increase has been driven by more sales via financial advisors, many of whom have received product training from providers. In fact, this year so far, they account for half of all sales. But in sharp contrast, sales via banks have fallen as a proportion of the total Elaine, do you think this is because structured products are bad or just because banks are bad at advising on them? It's very interesting, isn't it? Um, So there are lots and lots of reasons that are being given for why these sales are changing. Uh, One of the reasons is RDR, which we've talked about quite a few times on the show. The Retail Distribution distribution Review. It's a very snappy title. Um, So that's from from the beginning of next year. Financial advisors can no longer take commission when they sell products. They also have to prove that they have looked across the entirety of the market when they consider where to put your money for investment. So that means they've got to start learning about things like structured products and ETFs and all sorts of other um, areas they might not have looked at before. So providers are going along to advisors and saying, this is what we have, this is how they work, maybe you should consider them for your clients. So that could be part of the reason. At the same time, banks are less keen on having to provide advice in the new environment, so they're pulling back. So it's just sort of a changing market. And in terms of uh, the, the products that are that are out there, um, they vary such a lot, don't they? I mean, it, it, it's hard for... A financial, an independent financial advisor, let alone a, a bank, to uh, be able to explain them. I mean, you've looked at the fact that some are tied to one simple index, like the FTSE 100. Fairly easy to explain. Others, it's a combination of indices, and things have got to go up to certain levels and not fall below certain barriers, and it's got to be a Tuesday afternoon when it happens. And it, it, all of these sort of terms and conditions. Very hard to follow. In terms of the number of products, if you compare it to funds, it's actually sort of quite small. So in that way, financial advisors have got a list. They can look through it. You know, there's a limited number. But you're right. In terms of how the actual products work, there is so much variation out there. And even when you take the simplest plans, you take Uh, say, a deposit plan, which means that the money that you invest, you will get that back no matter what happens to the index. So this is deposit, structured product. Even if you look at that, the terms within those are still actually quite complex. So there's all these sorts of caveats. If this happens, if that happens, you will only get your money back. If something else happens, you will get your money back plus a little bit more. But then the product might come to an end before the term that you were told in the first place. They are quite complex. I suppose one of the big factors that people have um, only relatively recently sort of come to terms with is the, is this notion of counterparty risk. The, uh, the products that are investment-based as opposed to deposit-based are reliant on a third-party bank still being around to, to cough up. 
Yeah, these are market linked. So you're not actually putting your money into the stock market and neither is the structured product provider. What they're doing is they hand your money over to a counterparty, so something like Santander. Santander is then responsible for giving the money back when the product matures or comes to an end with the additional return if the uh, product is has paid out. And we've seen you know, the regulators talking more and more about... Uh, you know, the risks inherent in structured products and the, the fact that it's hard to to see how they work. You know, this, the idea that they are opaque and the, you know, the, the head of the new Financial Conduct Authority in waiting has indicated that structured products are on the radar. Do you expect there to be more regulatory action? I think so. I think we're expecting uh, there to be more involvement from the regulator when products are being designed in the first place and also more involvement in how they're explained, so the literature. So Santander quite recently has just been fined 1.5 million, which isn't necessarily that much in terms of the amount of products they sell, but it's kind of a shot across the bows. It's just saying we're watching you, we know what you're doing, we're looking at structured products. If you're not explaining them properly, and Santander wasn't explaining properly the fact that if the bank itself failed, then investors would lose their money. So the regulator is saying, if you don't explain this properly, we will fine you and we will stop you selling these products. Clarity and transparency, that's what we need. Thanks, Elaine. And for more on structured products and five that independent analysts do think are worth considering, have a read of Elaine's article in the money section of the Weekend FT. That's all we have time for in this week's FT Money Show. Remember, you'll find all of these stories, plus daily news updates, blog posts and top tips on our website, ft.com forward slash money. You can follow our tweets at twitter.com forward slash FT Money. And if you'd like us to answer a question about any aspect of your finances, just email us. The address is ask at ft.com next week we'll bring you another financial lowdown in downloadable form but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from elaine and our special guest david dyer of axa investment managers goodbye goodbye this is the financial times podcast in association with city index here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.